to God Girl. Kathleen Pelsani posley is a Cubs fan who got to see her beloved champions play in the World Series this year. She's covered the God beat for the Chicago Sun-Times over the, for over a decade, and she's also written um, a popular column on faith and culture for them. She's also written all over the place. Her works appeared in Rolling Stone, Christianity Today, Christian Century Magazine, uh, as well as Chicago Tribune. Uh, she's been in the Washington Post, the Toronto Star, Kansas City Star, the Harvard Daily School Bulletin, CNN, and other publications in North America and Europe. She's also appeared as a commentator on CNN and on Oprah Winfrey's Soul Series. Uh, she's been on National Public Radio's The Story and Weekend Edition, the BBC, Fox News Channel, Moody Radio, WGN, and too many other things to, to announce. And all this is to say the reason she's been on all this is because she is a really good interview, fascinating person, and the first person I've had on the Thinking God podcast who shares my... Uh, ink running in my veins as a fellow a former journalist and she's now doing other things too and continuing to write um, she's the author of a number of books including Disquiet Time, Sin Boldly, The Dude Abides and The God Factor and with her husband Pulitzer Prize winning journalist and best selling author Maurice Posley uh, Kathleen operates the Centers and Saints Consulting which is a firm specializing in helping creatives in the publishing, film, and television industries out in Laguna Beach is where they're located now. She is also a professional photographer since she didn't have enough to do writing and traveling all over the world and running this consulting firm and being a Cubs fan. And she is the one and only God Girl, and I appreciate her appearing today on the Thinking God podcast. Why God Girl? Uh, it was a, a very organically given, bestowed nickname um, that came about... Jeepers, 14 years ago, 14 years and two weeks ago, <laughs> I had uh, spent about 10 days traveling with Bono and his organization at, that at the time was called Data, Debt, AIDS, Trade, Africa, that was the precursor to the One Campaign. Um, and I traveled with him as a religion reporter while he went on a bus across the American Midwest trying essentially to get the evangelical church to pay attention and respond to the AIDS emergency at the time in sub-Saharan Africa. And so it was, it was an incredible trip. My editors at the Chicago Sun-Times were fantastic um, in playing along and, you know, sending me out there. In the, I literally landed in Nebraska in the middle of a blizzard the night before December 1st, World AIDS Day, to go on this tour with him. And I wrote daily, sometimes twice daily, dispatches back from the road and his various encounters with Christians and others and students and where he was trying to get us basically to pay attention to the gospel call in all of this, which is, you know, if we're not responding to the the sick and the disenfranchised and the poor, then we're missing the whole gospel message. So um, I'd spent 10 days doing that, and all these stories are running off the front page of the, of the Sun-Times, and it was just terrific. And I got back into town and went out to a local watering hole, as was the custom at the time, 
with a bunch of other reporters. And across the bar, there's this really tall guy at the back of the bar, um, about six foot six, I think. And he leaned over and yelled in his flat Chicago accent, Hey, God, girl! <laughs> and uh, the guy's name was Bill Zamey, who's a, one of, a dear friend of mine and, and a, one of the best magazine writers we have of this generation. Um, was writing, I think, for GQ at the time anyway. Or, I'm sorry, Esquire at the time, long-time Esquire contributor. Anyway, he gave me the name, and it just kind of stuck. <laughs> uh, um, I think I've outgrown the girl part of it, uh, <laughs> arguably, but it's there it is. Well, how long has faith played a role in your life, Kathleen? As long as I can remember in one one way or another. Um I was born, I'm half Irish, half Italian, and I'm the grandchild of immigrants on both sides. And so very, very, very Catholic. And grew up in a home where religion and faith and beliefs and spirituality were just part and parcel of the world in which I lived. My mother's great aunt was a sister of mercy, um, a nun, and she was sort of ever-present in my home. She was elderly. She was my grandma, my grandfather's sister. So she was, who had he had passed away when I was three, but you know she was always there, and we would have conversations about God and about church and catechism and this and that. From my earliest memories, or some of them are of, of sitting with her. And my parents were really well-traveled people. They had lived all over the world before they met and before they had us, and. So my house was in suburban Connecticut, not far outside New York City, um, had a lot of culture in it, a lot of artifacts and artwork and books and things, uh, furniture and this and that from cultures very different um, from my own, and they were just part of the fabric of our home. Um, And I remember uh, literally one of my very earliest memories is of sitting on the floor of our family den reading through my, my our house was also filled with books my parents were both academics um educators and i remember sitting there on the floor looking through the time life book of world religions and just being like for hours staring at the pictures of the huge buddhas and whirling dervishes and women with mehendi on their hands and just seeing how other people, what other people believed and what it looked like and how they behaved and how maybe it was different from what I knew. And I was always fascinated by that, Um, not because I wanted to figure out how they were wrong, but because I wanted to know why they believe what they believe and how it meant that they lived their lives and what that looked like. Um, And that's a fascination that's just been I think organic to who I am how I how I made so that's from the very beginning a thread that goes throughout my life and then when I was about 10 my parents became born-again Christians and left the Catholic Church and I grew up largely from you know fourth or fifth grade on in the Southern Baptist Church in Connecticut which is a very unusual thing to be. <laughs> um, Wasn't that but, a, Tom, Tom, a Mark Twain book, a Connecticut Baptist? And, no, that was a different thing. Something like that, <laughs> right? I just right out of that. Um, so, and and the southern my memories of the Southern Baptists say what you will about them um, uh, are very very warm. I got all of the grace and whatever judgmentalism and things that might be there in some 
reporters only winged me. Um, and so I got all of my Bible from there and all of my, I think the, the sound theology that I still cling to comes from my time with the Southern Baptist and their emphasis on family and kids and the, you know, ice cream socials on Sunday nights. And when I think, I think I was in eighth grade, seventh or eighth grade, when we actually did a uh, church raising, we, we had been meeting in a school for years and teams from Alabama and Georgia and Mississippi and other places came up and actually built, physically built us a church one summer. And I remember hanging out, you know, taking people lemonade and occasionally, you know, nailing something or helping somebody with shingles or whatever. Very, very fond memories of community. Um, and all of it centered around, you know, this grace-forward, loving Jesus. So that kind of paved the path for the evangelical Harvard that you attended in college? Oh, gross. Yeah. Um, so it, it, no one was more surprised than me that I went to Wheaton, frankly. Um, I hadn't intended, it was not my dream or intention to go to a Christian school. Christian, I'm using that as the descriptor that they use for themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had applied, it was, Wheaton was the only Christian school I applied to, and I applied largely because my best friend at the time in high school, it was the only place she ever wanted to go. And so I thought, well, I'll apply, and, you know, Katie's going to go, and um, I hear good things academically about it. My father was had many masters and a Ph.D. and was a teacher for years in, in Greenwich, Connecticut. And he was not thrilled with the idea of a Christian school because I think he thought it was synonymous with poor academics mm. or somehow um, sloppy thinking. Um, but he was impressed with Wheaton. So that was sort of, and my mother really, really wanted me to go to a Christian school, and I would have preferred, well, at the time, I thought I wanted to go to Dartmouth or a few other places. So I applied to all, ended up applying to a bunch of schools in the South, which in retrospect was crazy, because I am very much a Yankee. Um, But again, got into a bunch of them and got into Eaton, and I just couldn't quite decide, and then decided with the caveat that if I hated it by Christmas, we would try to figure out as a family a way to, for me to maybe go to a different school. Um, and then God in God's great providence and timing, um, I did not enjoy myself there the first quarter. But then on, in early December of my freshman year, I got my first boyfriend. And things changed. <laughs> That's and the way I college works. And... And it's funny, I was just, my son is 17. Um, he's a junior in high school now. And... I was just telling somebody this story. We were talking about their their daughter, who's a freshman and who's not quite found her people yet, even though it's only been two months. But you know, two months when you're 18 years old feels like an <laughs> eternity. And I told the story, and I said, and it, she said, "Well, I don't want her to stay at a school because of a boyfriend." I'm like, "Oh no, I, you know, I didn't stay at the school because of the boyfriend, but the boyfriend. I found my people through the boyfriend. Bless you, Kristoff, at the time, and realized that the the people I met through him." are the people who are still among the closest in my life. And in fact, we're are part of the community here in, in California uh, and the reason that we moved here. And I hadn't really tied it back to that, you know, one Saturday night in Chicago on December 3rd, 1988, when things changed. Now, were, but, you, were, uh, you, a, were you at Wheaton when Rob Bell was there? You are about the same age. Rob right? and I are in the same class. Yeah, okay. Rob and his wife Kristen and I were all in the, in the same class, and Rob's sister Ruth was a year or two behind me. I was uh, I've, I've known Rob for years, but I was better friends with his, his younger sister. 
Well, did did Wheaton have any sort of impact on shaping your approach to God? Oh, heck yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, I can only speak from my experience, and my experience happens to have happened at Wheaton, but I think college at its best does a, goes a long way to shaping who we are as as adults. At least and it certainly did for me and because Wheaton everything is we are encouraged to we were encouraged to view and study everything through a lens of faith. Now that looks different for different people, but um again it was sort of it was just the milieu. And so everything we studied, all of that, the the spiritual whether you were you know, this side of the spectrum or the other, conservative or liberal or progressive or whatever it was, within Christendom, within evangelical Christendom in particular, American evangelical <laughs> Christendom in particular, you know, it, it was all part of the ether. And I had, I had marvelous friends who remain my best friends to this day, um, soul friends, Anamkara, the Celts would call them soul friends who continue to walk with me all these years later. And I also had some extraordinary professors who really, really changed the way I see the world and the way I understand Christendom and Jesus and the gospel and my um, what I'm supposed to be doing while I'm here, <laughs> what I'm not supposed to be doing while I'm here, how to look at art, how to experience art. Um, and some were professors that were mentors and some were professors that I think probably thought they barely winged me, but something they said has stuck with me ever since they said it. I think about this one professor, Arthur Holmes, he of blessed memory now, um, who was, I think, the chairman of the philosophy department at Wheaton, and I took one entire philosophy course while I was there, and it happened to be with him. And it was very early in the morning, eight being early at that time, um, so I missed a lot of it, but I remember something he said, I'm sure he said it in the classroom, but he also said it in a chapel, um, which was essentially, um, all truth is God's truth. If it's true, it comes from God, and it doesn't matter who's saying it. If it's true, it's from God. And so I think about that, that really sort of, um, to borrow a phrase from a friend, widened the aperture of the way I saw the world. I had another I had a theater professor named Jimmy Young, who uh, he also of blessed memory now, passed away a few years ago, who was the closest thing to a guru in the very best sense I think I've ever had. And he created a community among the young actors and dramaturgs and seamstresses and set designers and all of that that was deeply, deeply, deeply sacred and and grounded in, in spirit. And I think about when we would stand in a circle before, while we were um, rehearsing for a, a production or whatever. I was just in Wheaton last week, and um, I think it was last week, and uh, a friend of mine from those theater days is actually in a production at the college right now, and we're talking about the theater space itself. And remembering when we'd stand in these circles, and Gemma taught us these really simple prayers, because we get wordy, especially evangelicals, we tend to get really wordy and preachy when we're praying aloud. And he taught us to just say, we would turn to the next person in the circle, say it was David, and we would just simply say, we lift to you your child David, and then we'd all say David. And that was the prayer, and that is a prayer that when I don't know what else to do, 
when I don't know what else to say or what to ask or even how prayer works, I can do that. I can lift up the name of the beloved child to his or her creator and do that. Lift the name and the person into the light. So those are a few things that have stayed with me, but Wheaton was absolutely formative to who I am and how I see the world. Those were some pretty progressive mentors for the evangelical college back then. I mean, Yeah, they were. I seemed to find them. I sniffed them out, and there were plenty, and by the way, still are. <laughs> <laughs> despite what you but, read yeah, about some of the despite stories. Despite what are, you might read. Yeah. Um, you know, my understanding of my alma mater is that for time and memoriam, the administration has always been vastly more conservative than the student body and the faculty, and the faculty tends to be even more progressive than largely than the student body is at any given time. So it's a great place, and there's still marvelous professors. A few of my professors from those days are still teaching. Well, how, and, did, uh, how did your path wind from that into journalism? Well, I started doing journalism at Wheaton, um, and like all good things, it started with me lipping off about something and someone overhearing me and daring me to do something um, about it which, by the way, also happened today. I'll get to that later. Um, so uh, we had, as we still do, we have a, news, a student newspaper called The Record, which was weekly at the time, I think is still weekly, although with digital publishing there's a lot more that happens in between publishing days. I'm using air quotes. Um, and everybody, it was sort of a sport to complain about it, how bad it was. And I was in the student union in the stoop, as we call it, uh, as we called it at the time, which is, you know, the little cafe where we'd go get bad coffee and chocolate um, between classes. And I was standing at, I'm, I'm sure, putting way too much cream in my coffee, and I was pontificating about what should be done about the record. And a guy named Dave Almroth was behind me. He was a couple of years older than I was and happened to be on the staff. And he said, well, instead of complaining about it, why don't you walk up the stairs and volunteer to be on the staff? So he double-dog dared me, and I walked up the stairs and <laughs> walked into the newsroom and said, do you have any positions open? Um, and that was, I think, my f- first semester of my sophomore year, and I've been doing journalism ever since. Now, were you a writer before that? Had you written? I was. I was. Yeah, you know when you're in third or fourth grade and they ask yep. you to write the essay about what you want to be when you grow up? Mm-hmm. I remember, like, third grade, it was oceanographer, and then fourth and fifth grade, it was journalist. Um, and I grew up in a house that had, we always had the New York Times. We always had all of the weekly news magazines. We, my parents were newsies. My dad was a political buff, endlessly curious about the world. And so I grew up with journalism in the house. And I thought, what a great way to see the world. Um, not, and, and by that, I didn't mean necessarily traveling, but by getting to be a witness to history. And, you know, I know some journalists, I'm supposed, this is a part supposed to tell you that I saw all the President's Men when I was seven and <laughs> wanted to be Woodward, Woodstein or whatever um, they called them at the time. But that wasn't it. I didn't want to... I didn't want to be an investigative reporter. I, um, I ended up marrying one instead. Right. Um, Remind everybody that, who your husband is. My husband is Maurice Posley, who's a, um, a Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative reporter, formerly of the Chicago Tribune of many years. Um, and he, So I, I, I married Bernstein, essentially, <laughs> um, and, went, and went to school in the town where Woodward grew up. Um, 
So I wanted to tell stories. I find people fascinating, and I wanted to go see things and learn things and find out, ask questions and go into places where people don't usually get any light shown on them. I mean, that was from a pretty early age, something I wanted to do, um, and to talk to people about the important, the most important things, the essential things. And I'm very, I'm really blessed that for 97% of my time as a journalist, I've been able to focus on uh, faith and spirituality and have conversations with people about eternal things. And that's been a real gift and continues to be. Who, who were some of the writers who influenced you during that time? Um, I would say, I would say Anne Lamott, but I think she came a little bit later She's a little than college. Later, yeah. A little bit later than college. Um, well, Fred Frederick Beekner certainly mm-hmm. was somebody who, of course, is not really is not a journalist by any stretch of the imagination, but is somebody who is a consummate observer of life. I mean, there's his famous quote, which is one of my favorites favorite quotes from anyone: "When listen to your life, it's about paying attention." And um, I think Fred came to campus. He had been there as a visiting professor just before I was at Wheaton, but he, I think he came to speak at least once when I was there, and I know we did one of his plays while I, in, in the theater um, company while I was at, at Wheaton as well. And Fred was and remains um, deeply influential for me. And um, I'm, try, I'm trying to think of who else I was reading at the time. Um, you know, bits of Gay Talese and bits of Joan Didion. I was sort of, and Hunter S. Thompson, I was sort of <laughs> fascinated with the gonzo journalism, although never did it myself. But trying to, being taught the subverted upside down um, triangle, the very, our, our, our journalism professor at Wheaton was very traditional. Uh, and a lot of people didn't like that about him. I mean, he could be crusty, but boy, did I learn the basic principles of how to write. And, you know, I still flinch every time I see the passive voice in publication where, you know, it oh, could have been Lord. avoided, I think, of him. Um, but uh, I've, now I've completely lost my train of thought. What was I no, talking we're, about? We were just talking about how influences and also how... Oh, we, other, we, other yeah. writers. Yeah, I mean, I read I read Faulkner when I was I read broadly when I was at, right. at Wheaton, but I think the one that I come back to and, and because I think it's where I met him, met his work is Frederick Beekner. So you you went to Wheaton and you graduated. And what what was the path between there and getting to the Chicago Sun Times? Well, you know, as is the the traditional hope for the parents of every twenty one year old single girl graduating from Wheaton, I got a job as an associate editor at a Christian feminist magazine. Um, <laughs> you try to see how time. small a circulation publication you could find. <laughs> and, uh... um, it was da- Daughters of Sarah was the name of the magazine. It was a quarterly journal um, that had been published in, sh- in and around Chicago f- for all of my life. I think the f- the f- its first issue was maybe, I used to know this by heart, but it's been a long time now. It was... Uh, published like the month before I was born. And so I was there for its last chapter um, and uh, was an associate editor and helped with all kinds of different parts of the production and editing people and scholars who I had no business editing um, and writing myself. And um, I did that and supplemented that 
you know, princely sum of an income by making lattes and waiting tables. Um, and I did that for about a year and a half, or maybe not even that long, a little more than a year um, after Wheaton. And then it became, I graduated in 92 when the job market was really lousy um, and pretty bleak. And breaking into things was hard to do. Um, and the old way of breaking into newspapering, which is what I wanted to do, as opposed to magazines at the time. I wanted to do newspaper reporting. I wanted to do it for a big metropolitan newspaper. Um, uh, the only way to do that was to go to grad school at the time. And I think largely continues to be that way. It's even tougher now to break in because there are much fewer spots. But so I, I but this is how that happened. Um, I had an interest in theology, I always have, um, more in the comparative religions side of things than um, arguing over how many angels can dance on the end of a pen or what flavor of grace you might be experiencing at the time and how you might be experiencing it wrongly if you're not thinking about it correctly. That doesn't interest me at all. But um, was trying to figure out whether I should go to a seminary or to university to study comparative religions or if I wanted to go to journalism school and go that route and try to become a, a journalist. And I went in um, for a job interview at the Christian Century, where Jim Wall at the time was still the editor. I love him. What a gracious, gracious Southern man. Um, and I was applying for a position that I was vastly underqualified for. But he, um, he, he met with me, and he was gracious and patient and took me very seriously. And um, asked me some of the same kinds of questions you've just asked me, and, and he said, as only he can, he's like, have you ever thought about graduate school? And I said, uh, well, yeah, actually I have. I'm, I'm trying to figure out if I want to pursue religious studies, at, comparative religions or something like that, at a seminary or elsewhere, or if I want to go to journal journalism school. He said, you don't say. Last week I was up at Northwestern, which of course has one of the best journalism graduate schools in the country, mm -hmm. um, because they're putting together, at the time they were putting together a, um, a new graduate program for two master's degrees, one in um, theological studies and one in journalism, to train print reporters to cover journalism well for the secular media. And that's about the closest I had experience to a pillar of fire or a <laughs> thunderbolt. So, yeah, that's so I remember the next, that was a maybe like a Thursday afternoon, and Friday morning I got up and I started calling Northwestern, and nobody even knew what the program was at the time and drove up there and um, applied both places separate. I was the first person to apply to the program, and I was the first, I believe I was the first person to graduate from the program. Wow. Um, it's still running in some fashion, not quite as uh, the same as it was when I was there, but... And, and from there, I was laser-focused, basically, on what I wanted to do. And I got exceptionally great training at both um, Garrett Seminary, where I went on the campus of Northwestern, and at, at the Medill School of Journalism, where my master's in journalism is from, and where I met my husband. <laughs> wow. That really was so, a complete win there. <laughs> soup to nuts, <Really>? yeah. <laughs> well, okay, you, you kind of came in during a time when news, print newspapers were, were still taking faith stories seriously, and they'd moved into that sort of that era. Um, well, I came in just in advance of that, where I spent the first few years as a cub reporter trying to and, and making the case 
gotcha. to editors, both at the paper where I worked and else in papers I'd like to work at, that religion was a, if you do it right, a really dynamic, huge, interesting beat. Um, and I finally managed to convince someone of that. It took a couple of years, but I got there. And then it was the heyday. You know, I started working for um, the Chicago Sun-Times in September of 2000. And for the next five years, it was truly the heyday of religion reporting where, you know, I think that's when the, the um, Dallas Morning News had like had a, a, sec, a daily section or at least, at least a weekly section and five or six staff reporters right. and every major newspaper and most secondary market newspapers and magazines had dedicated religion reporters, at least one. Um, and it was it was quite a time. It was also a really difficult time because in 2002 is when the scandal um, of clergy sex abuse in the Catholic Church of the United States really hit mm-hmm. in Boston. And then, you know, like so many of my colleagues, spent the bulk of the next year to 18 months writing little about little writing about little else than those cases, which of course take place in a spiritual in a, a religious setting and have the spiritual import, but, you know, I became acquainted with police reports and depositions and um, ugly, ugly, violent crime in a way that I had never intended to when I was setting out to be a religion reporter. But it was also a time when, you know, there were budgets. And so, I mean, I, I went three or four times to Rome when I was at the Sun-Times and traveled elsewhere um, as well uh, abroad to cover global stories that were related to religion and all of that has sadly gone away at least at least in the um, daily newspaper side of things some of that reporting has moved over into the um, um, private sector now you know there are places like the International Reporting Fellowship and other places that do fund international and well mostly international reporting with a religion bent but um, distribution is not as broad. It is the, the budget cuts. And it is interesting how uh, even now, to some degree, they find money to cover scandals and nothing else. I mean, my experience was earlier, it was the, the televangelist scandals with Jim Baker and Jimmy Swaggart and all that. When then suddenly right. that became the only thing to cover. You know, and he, you lost all, a lot of good stories because it was all about these guys getting arrested. And, um, yeah. And, and, you know, those stories are, they, they have legs, but they also should be covered. This is an argument I always made because, um, it's not new. If Christians were behaving the way they should be behaving, it's not actually news. (laughs) But when they do something like that, sadly, that becomes a a certain kind of a news story that, that people like to see. It's the schadenfreude. It's the we put somebody up on a pedestal or God forbid they put themselves there and then we take great glee in knocking them off. But then again, Americans love nothing more than a comeback story. So when somebody tries to climb back up again, if they're doing it in a humble way or a redemptive way, we love that story too. But yeah, I mean, I I was lucky in, in the most unlikely of places. I worked for the tabloid that's the size, describes the size of the newspaper, as you know, mm-hmm. not, not necessarily the right. style. Right. Um, and I, I was never a, I would argue I was never a tabloid style reporter, um, but, you know, working for the tabloid newspaper in Chicago where we did really serious religion journalism and also really 
interesting and um, accessible and compelling religion coverage about stuff that people might not have thought to call religion, but we did. I know Um, I'm asking a question that's mining into thousands of stories over a number of years, but are there any stories mm -hmm. that really still stay with you that you, you worked on during that time? I mean, it's, it's, it's a decade of my I know. life. I mean, I literally, um, literally, it's thousands of stories, I mean. Um, you know, people usually ask me about the more well-known people I've, I've interviewed, and, and, you know, certainly some of those encounters were, were special. But, you know, I think about, there's always one that comes to mind when people ask this, and I, I rarely have a chance to talk about it. And I can't exactly tell you why it stuck with me. Stuck with me. I can't even tell you the guy's name or exactly how the whole story went. But um, it was toward the end of my tenure, and a man who, I think he'd been, I can't remember if he'd been a lifelong Catholic or not, but he was divorced and had grown children, and his ex-wife was still alive, and he was going to be ordained a Catholic priest in the diocese, in the Archdiocese of Chicago, which I think probably the only reason I was writing about it or sent to write about it was because it hadn't happened before. But I remember sitting with him and talking to his children and people who knew him and his ex-wife and not and really not knowing if he was actually going to do it and, and being there at the service and wondering, like, at the Mass where he was going to be ordained and not knowing if he was actually going to make that leap and walk in walking with him through that and the honor um, it was and the privilege it was to be with somebody who was so open about their humanity and their faith and their doubts and so real about it in, in such a in such a public fashion and I honestly I have to go look it up I can't remember I think he did get ordained hmm. but I remember sort of the night before like he really I I don't and he was trying to be as faithful in his discerning as he possibly could and to listen for that still small voice. And, um, yeah, that, that story stays with me. And it, I, it wasn't a particularly spectacular story. It's not one of the ones that I don't think it ran off the front page. But I remember, I remember spending the, the time I spent with him and that in the community around him in reporting the story is what I remember more than actually how, how it played in the paper. Um, so that's one. Um, I also think of it's Thanksgiving coming up and I always think of the story of, which wasn't necessarily, um, a religion story, but as, as previously discussed, how I was uh, conditioned and trained to see the world. You know, I see, I see faith and I see spirituality and I see the spiritual all around me. Um, and I, my husband was, um, was married before and had four older children. And so with Thanksgiving, we would have the kids the day after. And I worked the sometimes with a union paper. And so you had to work a certain number of holidays. And so I often worked on Thanksgiving day, had a lot of, um, really great potlucks in the newsroom. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Remember the year I think I tried to bring Tofurky and was basically booed out of the out of the newsroom. But um, so it's amazing that you start to remember viscerally when you think about these things. I think of, um, I can't remember, oh, goodness, what was her name? 
she was an editorial assistant who worked on the city desk, and she would make, and she was Hispanic, and she would make um, guacamole, these huge, huge vats of guacamole, and she left the pits in it. And that's how I learned that if you don't want your guacamole to turn gray, you leave the pits in it after you make it. Anyway, but I digress. So it was a Thanksgiving, and I was usually assigned to, among other things, you have to sort of usually whoever's working has to check on cops and this and that and on the skeleton crew of the day. Um, But also there's usually a human interest story. And something had happened. I know what it was. My mother had been diagnosed with breast cancer. I was also a columnist. Um, at the Sun-Times, so I was a reporter. And, there was a, a period of years where I was a reporter and a columnist, both on the religion beat. Um, and I had written about my, in a column about my mother being diagnosed with breast cancer and how I was sort of having a Mexican standoff with, with God, like we weren't speaking. <laughs> we were just sort of glaring right. at each other. And, you know, I got a lot of, it was really gratifying in those days to be um, a columnist because it was before people commented in the troll section on a website and would actually send you emails. Sometimes nasty emails, but more often than not kind or interesting. And there was this, I got a lot of emails from people saying we were praying for my mother and this and that. And I got this email from this one man, Tom Kalicki is his name, um, where he, he was a believer and he was writing to me in that capacity, wanting to encourage me to move past the anger and just know that you know, um, that God is grace and loved and blah, blah, blah. But he told me just a tiny bit of his story. It was one of those moments of like, oh, my God, what am I complaining about? His wife had a, a form of lymphoma where she was, had been on death's door on and off for years. They had three kids. He was a paramedic. He had been injured and been out of work. The bank was trying to foreclose on their house. I mean, all this stuff. And yet here he was writing to me, some schmucky, you know, columnist at the Sun-Times to encourage me. And so I wrote him back, and this started this dialogue with this family, and he had to work on Thanksgiving, and his wife was in between um, uh, bone marrow transplants at the time, where, you know, she was very frail, and they had three um, young teenage kids. And so I said, I want to come and make Thanksgiving dinner with the kids so you don't have to do anything because she didn't have any energy. And that's what I did. I went and made Thanksgiving with them. Um, and I, you know, I'll never see a can of uh, cranberry <laughs> goo, cranberry sauce, the gelatinous cranberry sauce in quite the same way again. And, and it was a, um, a really, and I don't use this term flippantly, it was a really sacred experience to be with this family to just do the simple things mm-hmm. and to see, you know, God's presence in, in all of that, especially the simple things. And that was a family whose story I followed then for a, a few years until she passed away. Um, That's a really cool story. You didn't give him a toe turkey, though. You gave him a real turkey, right? You didn't try to... No, no, it was a real turkey. <laughs> it was a real turkey, yeah. And you I, want to be booed out of that there's some kind of, There was some sort of... Um, Oh, God, I have to go look it up. Um, some sort of a castle. Every family has that weird thing that they put on the Thanksgiving mm-hmm. table. Well, they had a weird thing that um, I helped the kids make that was just, she was absolutely delighted that this thing was, was I want to say, 
like Fritos and corn. It was some sort of capital <laughs> around that idea. Anyway, yeah, well, yeah, uh, but I, I think about them, and I still, I still see, you know, Tom and his kids are on Facebook, and I still uh, keep track of them. I see them pop up every once in a while, and they're grown, and you know, see how how they're weathering life, and still get, still see Tom's, who's had a lot of adversity since then. Um, his encouraging, faithful, encouraging posts on Facebook every once in a while. It really makes me smile. And that was an opportunity I would not have had had I not been a reporter. And that, to me, is far more precious than um, some of the opportunities to spend time with the rich and famous and um, that I've also had over the years, which are, are fun to talk about. But, you know, it's those those intimate moments in the lives of regular people that I was invited to share that were the best part of what I've done as a uh, journalist, I yeah. think. That's a great story. And I think I've met a lot of people in journalism over the years that they're, they're in it for to tell their storytellers that you're right. The yeah. other stuff doesn't matter nearly as much. Also, one of the reasons I was really interested in having looked at your books, actually, to be honest with you, the first time I heard of, heard of you was through Steve Brown. Um, Oh, I, I love Steve Brown. Yeah, I met Steve years ago. <laughs> we actually brought him to town for a thing, and he's he's going to be on in December, so he's going to come. He's going to talk to me in December. But uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, I, I ran into you were talking about a while ago when there were a lot of papers with staffs that had a lot of a lot of religion writers. But my experience, mm-hmm. the ones I ran into, it was rare to run into one who took it as seriously as the political writers took it. They would they would not do their homework. Many of them weren't people of faith or backgrounds of faith, so. I think you brought something sort of unique to the to the party. Well, there. yeah, I mean, I will say that I had a lot of, I think there were time there were, there was a, an era, and I think in some fashion we're back in it, although it's a very different beast these days, the fourth estate and what's left of newspapers at all. But there was a time, a long time, where it, nobody wanted to do the religion beat. So it was like the hot potato, because right. you knew that unless you were, unless you were an, educated and an expert, and very few people were, you knew it was like a lose-lose situation. No matter what you wrote, somebody was going to be pissed off. You were going to offend somebody, and it just wasn't any fun. And it was largely covered as, you know, institutions. So who wants to go cover some, you know, Methodist convention? I'm not just picking on the Methodists. I could have said any denomination right there. That's boring. I don't want to do that. I didn't want to do that as a religion reporter, and I didn't, largely. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But uh, I will say that, you know, a lot of my colleagues at other papers and magazines and to some extent at at, uh, television, in television as well, uh, and certainly in the radio, um, who were religion reporters, religion journalists, especially in that time that I was at the Sun-Times, were really excellent and people who wanted to be on the beat, and people who took it very seriously. And a lot of us, there was a time where I would say the leading 20 um, publications with full-time religion staff had religion reporters and or columnists who had at least some kind of advanced training in religion or a related topic. But I will also say that some of the best religion reporters we've ever had in this country are not people of faith. Oh, absolutely. I'm just talking it, about people who took it seriously. You know, yeah. They took their job seriously enough to do their homework. Yep. You don't yep. have to be a Democrat or a Republican to cover that no. convention if you do your you homework. You have to do it well, exactly. And you have to understand what you're covering. Um, and it doesn't take a lot of elbow grease to do that. You know, you don't have to. It's, you know, sometimes it helps if you can speak religion ease. 
um, especially if you can speak evangelical ease, which I, I do. Um, but I always try, and when I was a reporter for, when I was just a reporter in particular for the first however many years, and then when I was a reporter and a columnist, I was always very um, hyper anal about making sure the one didn't bleed into the other. And so I never tipped my hand about what I may or may not be. So there was, for a time, I am told, and this could be apocryphal, but this is what I was told over the years, among the Council of Religious Leaders of Chicago, there was sort of a running bet as to what I actually was, because <laughs> I kept, kept it close to the vest. But then, you know, it, it was on that 2002 trip with, uh, with Bono that I talked about earlier, um, where it was when Bono came to Wheaton, and I wrote a column about going back to Wheaton for the first time since oh. I'd graduated. So you were out. And how, well, no, I, I outed myself. <laughs> yeah, okay, okay. But yeah, I also yeah. outed myself as, as you know, somebody who is, <laughs> is perhaps hardest on her own people. Um, so, yeah, but then they would still get confused because they're like, but your aunt was a sister of mercy and you have a rabbi? Like, I don't understand. It's like, well, yeah. It's just me. Uh, <laughs> now, I, I'm, I, my decades run together. As the older you get, the more that happens. That's mm-hmm. just, uh, yeah. Was the Chicago Council on Inerrancy still up and running strong? Because they used to be a very loud and vociferous group of conservatives. No. Okay. They were not. Okay. I've I've heard tale of them, but they were right. not an outfit I actively dealt with. It no. was an ornery bunch, I can tell you that. I bet. But well, how do you how do you how have you seen the landscape of faith shift since you started covering spiritual issues? It's been a long time, and there have been a lot of shifts going on in the country. Well, you know, I I I will start by saying I do not buy into this generational this generation's iteration of the God is dead story, or that it's an increasingly secular society, or that um, you know the agnostics are winning, or what whatever that is mm-hmm. in our great cultural. Co- culture war dialogue, I don't think that's true at all. I think the iteration of how people express faith and experience it have changed, as they always do. And I think there's a swing away from institutions in general. Um, Institutions are equated nowadays in particular with sort of corporate structure, and the people who are younger than me don't want anything to do with that. Um, and And it's not just religion. It's everything. You know, they want bespoke artisanal, you know, honey stirrers, and they want the things that are authentic and real and big bodies, big institutions, whether they're religious or not, don't feel that way to them. And so they are, they are more um, apt and more deliberate about finding ways to experience the sacred and to express their faith um, outside of institutions. But they're still looking for community, though, right? I mean, they're still looking for some community to do it, but just not necessarily. Yeah, and I I would say, you know, it took me until certainly all of my 20s, until at least halfway through my 30s before I would actually admit that I needed community. And that community is something that's just a human need. Mm-hmm. I considered myself, you know, sort of a, a one-woman wolf pack. Like, I was fine. You know, I always had friends and stuff, but I wasn't a joiner. Right. Like, you're not going to get me to join a club or to join a church or, you know, I, I took a what was meant to be a summer break from, from church that lasted 15 years. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and it, and it wasn't because I felt any differently about Jesus or the gospel or God. It was because I didn't like the way Christians were behaving. I was in a I was in an Episcopal congregation that split over issues related to same-sex marriage back in you know ninety three ninety four, and that was really painful. And so I stepped. I thought like well, I'll just step away for a little bit, and then <laughs> fifteen years later. That's right. Um, but well, I you went said to you weren't a joiner. I wanted to tell you, you said you weren't a joiner. Mm. One, of my, one of my mentors in journalism, when I, I had a, a very similar mantra to him at one point, and he said, all that means is you have a press card. <laughs> you're not a joiner. You don't yeah. want to be for, you know, That's said, right. You're, you're, I'll just watch. Right. I'm all, over here. I'll just watch. I'll write about it. Corner. Don't ask me. To, <laughs> you know, I'm watching. I'm good. You know, don't, right. don't try to handle me too much. I'm just, I'm here. I'm in the room. I'm, I'm lurking in the narthex. So what brought you back? Is church a, a part of your faith experience now? It is. Okay. It is very much so, yeah. Um, so uh, I would say it was around about, it was, it was in my late 30s. It was about, in hindsight, and this is just the way I understand my own story, it was God very clearly getting me ready to become a mother, uh, which happened when I was uh, 38. Um in the in the year before that, I had had a book or two. It was just one book at that point. Come out, it just one uh, with Zondervan, which was a Christian publishing house. It was my first Christian publishing house. My first book was with Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux in New York. Very different experience. And I started to be invited to these parachurch sort of events, and was surrounded by what I used to disparagingly call shiny, happy Christians. And there was a lot about it that repelled me, but then there was this deep yearning that I wish, I didn't want to be part of that, but I wanted to be part of something. And it took me a while to admit that to myself. Um, But I did. And right about that time, um, a friend of mine who who went who I had gone to Wheaton with, uh, who was not one of my best friends, but just was one of those indelible people that you meet. You might not know them well, but they're fascinating, and they're like nobody else, and they're just uh, sort of Ferris Bueller, but you know, <laughs> not quite as cheeky. Just those singular iconoclastic people, and Mark was one of those people. And um, I I don't think I saw him again after we graduated, but I I would keep track of him at, through mutual friends and knew that he had gone on to become a Navy SEAL, which he, I remember him telling me one day that he was going to, I said, Mark, what are you going to do? He said, uh, I'm going to become a Navy SEAL. And I laughed and laughed because <laughs> he seemed like the last person to do that. And he was, I said, what are you talking about? He was, yeah, so I'll have material for my novel. And he was, in fact, writing a novel at the time, which he n- never quite finished. But um, anyway, Mark went on to be a Navy SEAL and, and to do a few other things and then, in uh, April of 2008, he was killed um, and uh, while serving abroad. And when Mark died, a bunch of us reconnected in a way that we hadn't really in the years in between, the 20 years or so in between. And the place that we reconnected was Facebook, of all things, which was still sort of, for people my age, was still sort of a fledgling mm-hmm. um, portal. Now it's an essential portal for a lot of us. And we started talking on Facebook and sort of really deeply, deeply connected again. And then started that led to us wanting to spend actual time in each other's presence. And so we started doing that as often as we could, flying here and there and getting together. And um, I came out 
my husband and I came out to Laguna Beach to uh, do a book event uh, as I had dedicated the book to Mark, the Sin Boldly book. Mm-hmm. And um, so his best friends who lived here, who were one of whom was uh, has always been a dear friend of mine, the other who was a, a friend, but you know not a good friend in college, um, both named David. Uh, they wanted me to come and do an event in town, and so we did. <coughs> they did a bookstore event, and then an event at, at the church that was called Little Church by the Sea, where Mark and his family worshipped. And um, we fell in love with the place. I mean, Laguna is easy on the eyes. It's a beautiful <laughs> yeah. Southern California quintessential surf town. It's gorgeous. It's you know all those things. The opposite of Chicago. Six months of gray. You know, <laughs> blah blah blah. You're all bundled up. You don't talk to anybody. I mean, it's, it's everybody's happy to be here. Oh my gosh, look at the sun. Look at the ocean. It's just it's a intoxicating place. And but beyond that, we fell in love with the community that we met here. And so um, eventually, actually not too eventually, in fairly short order, we decided to move here. And then um, just before we moved here, uh, our son arrived. Uh, that was the next although, question I was going to ask. Although he arrived in the package of, of us not realizing he was going to be our son, but yeah. So. Well, how has Vashko changed your view of God, being a mother? Um, I think he cleaned my lenses. Uh, he, you know, when you become a parent, um, everything changes in mm-hmm. ways that people can tell you they're going to change or give you a hint, but until you... Until you're there, you have no idea. And I had no idea um, how suddenly, after 38 years of life, it wasn't about me. (laughs) (laughs) Not at all. (laughs) Not at all. And to, um, yeah, and so seeing the world through your child's eyes, especially this child, um, and, and, this, and how Vashko became our, our child was just the greatest evidence of providence I've ever seen. And there's no way I can, can re- recount the story in, in its 10-cent version or the full mm-hmm. Monty without seeing God's fingerprints all over it. I mean, it was God made a family because God wanted to make a family by any means necessary. <laughs> we were going to be brought together, and we were. And uh, he's, I mean, my son is the, it sounds trite, but it's absolutely true. He's the, the absolute joy of my life in, in, in a way. I mean, I love my husband, and I have lots of wonderful friends and family, but in a, in a way that uh, I've never loved or felt that kind of joy before. And um, seeing him and how he understands God and... Uh, yeah, everything, everything changed. Everything changed. It's sort of if we're going to keep going with the metaphor of, of vision. I mean, it's sort of you know, I had LASIK eye, spiritual LASIK eye surgery when right. my son arrived. Now he's eighteen. Is that right? 17, 17, 17. Just turned seventeen. Yeah. Well, I just I know I, I read the I listened to a couple of the interviews and I read the stories about a very amazing story. People can look it up online. But uh, I know uh, the reason I asked that is I just any child does that. My, I don't think I really understood. God is father until I had children, you know? And yeah. Just, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I was blessed to have an extraordinary father 
So I never had problems with the father imagery. Mm-hmm. I got it. But God is parent. Like, I, I experienced God as the, as the daddy's girl. You know? uh, okay. But now maybe even catching a, a, a tiny sliver of what God feels for us as a parent, that's different. That changes everything. Mm-hmm. You know, what I wouldn't do for my, my son and, and, and the delight that I take in, in watching him. I get it now. Well, he's old enough. Bit. He's old enough now to kind of understand what you do. What does he think about your your writing and? <laughs> um, you know, I mean, he's it's a typical seventeen year old. I, mean, I have friends who are, are are famous and have kids the same age, and uh-huh. the the kids, you know, they know what mom or dad does, but they still think they're a dork or whatever. So they're and they're not going to remotely admit to mom or dad that they think what they do is interesting or cool. But um, just recently, uh, uh, one of the more clever girls, I'll have to say, that my son has met, um, sidled up to him at the beginning of the school year and said, do you know, because my son's last name is different than my byline, do you know Kathleen Falsani? <laughs> and Boschko said, yeah, she's my mom. And he's, she said, I love her writing. <laughs> and named one of my books. And, and he thought, he came to tell me that because he thought that was really cool. And I thought, uh, somebody Googled you. <laughs> and she's very clever, but I'll take it anyway. There you go. If it makes you think that I'm slightly cooler because this girl had allegedly read one of my books. As parents, so I said, ask her this... if it was the one about the Coen brothers. <laughs> if parents, we take what we can get. <laughs> and whatever. Because, I mean, easily the very coolest thing about, my, about me is my kid. So if he thinks I'm cool, you know, I'm, I'm going somewhere. Well, it, it, the days we take them one day at a time. If they think we're cool today, that's great. <laughs> that's fine. You mentioned your book, <laughs> Sin Boldly, and in that book, you you expound a lot on the concept of grace. And it, I think mm-hmm. you went, one of the quotes I said you said it was why you believe. Yeah. How, how did you have the sort of the grace revelation, or has it just been a part of your your walk the whole time? Well, I, yeah, I'm going to give props to the Southern Baptists. Um, grace was not something that I, again, now I was ten mind you, when I encountered the Baptist, but um, I was a very, I was a precocious kid, so I was a precocious Catholic, and I was very, I was the last one in my family to agree to leave the church. I mean, it was 10, but, you know, I had just, I had made my first communion, I was going to be making my confirmation, and, you know, I was Catholic, and what is this baloney about leaving and going to some other church that meets in a gymnasium? I didn't want any part of that, blah, blah, blah. So I don't think I had been taught anything at least not overtly, about grace as a theological concept or, or as connected to something coming from the divine um, until, I, until I was with the Baptist. And then we talked about grace all the time. Mm. Um, so, yeah, so it comes, it comes from there. And, you know, it's interesting when that book came about, um, my first book had been out for a little bit, and um, Zondervan came a courting. Uh, it was shortly after Rob Bell had had his his first book. His first book came out, I think, six months before I did. El- Velvet Elvis came out six months or so before um, The God Factor, my first book, did. And um, they were looking for other voices that they thought would be kind of revolutionary or something in in the same in the, in a similar fashion to what Rob has done. And I can't claim to do anything close to that, but. Anyway, they came according, a, a and I remember sitting, at, they came to visit me in Chicago one day, about four of them from the house, and 
um, this very demure woman named Angela said, uh, my agent said, so, you know, this is all nice. You're telling Kathleen all these great things about herself. And, and that's wonderful to hear, and we appreciate it. But uh, why? what do you want? <laughs> and, we won't, you know, and we know you want her to write for you, but, right. like, about what? What do, you, what do you want her to do? And Angela said, I've read several hundred of my columns and articles. And she said, and you're obsessed with grace. And it had never dawned on me before that. Wow. And I thought, well, goodness, lady, you're bingo. I, you're right, I am. Um, and I think grace is how I understand God and how I experience God most powerfully. That's my idea. I don't, I don't, when you say God to me, I don't think of a guy with a long beard. I, um, I, I quickly get to Jesus, um, who in my mind looks a lot like Michael Glazer, from Starsky and Hutch. Um, wow. Which I think is more accurate than some of the traditional depictions. <laughs> you know, come on, he was a little swarthy fella from the Middle East. Without, um, he was more Semitic ha- looking than... Not, that. The, not the hairspray combed Fonzie hairdo there kind of deal there. No, no. But, you know, sort of like, you know, short, stocky, mm-hmm. curly hair. Right. Little furry guy. Sort of like somewhere between Starsky and, or which one was he? Was he Starsky or Hutch? I can't remember. He was Starsky, right? I think so, yeah. <laughs> somewhere between Starsky and Robin Williams with, a, with, you know, name your favorite rabbi thrown in there. So that's <laughs> kind of how I picture Jesus. But before I get there, what I imagine in a way that I can't even articulate exactly what I see in my mind's eye, but it's grace. That's God. Well, I'm going to come back to a question about Jesus in a minute because I ask everybody a question. But I wanted to mention your uh, your most recent book. I guess it's Disquiet Time still. still? Yeah, and right, you're an editor yep. of this collection of essays about scripture, Bible, sort of a devotional, unusual kind of devotional book. Right, um, the sort of anti-devotional devotional yeah, do book. You, do you have a high view of scripture? Would you consider yourself having a high view of scripture? Or I don't know what that. I, I think I, I mean I know what that means. Yeah, in, it is a loaded in, question in, a little bit. In in press, it's my listen. My best good friend is John Michael Pillow from um, Yazoo City, Mississippi, who is a five point yeah, two Calvinist elder at the first church, or maybe it's the second church of Yazoo City. Um, <laughs> so I know all about this. Yeah. He's Bubba, and if you've read the book, he's Bubba. Um, okay, okay. And bouncing into Graceland, and uh, he's also Vashko's godfather. Um, so I I I get it. Um, I know what that means, and I suppose so. I don't really think about that. I mean, Scripture is divinely inspired and inerrant, and all of those things you have to unpack as to what they mean to the person who's invoking them. Mm -hmm. I I think if you've ever heard Eugene Peterson talk about Scripture, Mm And, you know, he, he who is one of my very favorite human beings, um, and, and how he went about composing the message paratranslation of, of Scripture. Whatever Eugene says about Scripture, <laughs> yes, that's, that's where I am. But he's going to say it far more eloquently than, than I can. Um, you know, it's... it's I don't know if if a high view of scripture also would include the fact that I know it's a living, breathing document created, inspired by God and created by with the help of humans and that it's poetry and prose and metaphor and it's not an encyclopedia and 
that it is something that we are meant to interact with and experience and wrestle with over and over and over again, um, then yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was a good answer. I, and, and the next question is, I think I've asked this to all my guests is just, and, and you started talking about it a minute ago and I kind of skipped to it. Uh, if somebody that uh, you met was maybe not even a person of faith and they ask you, who is Jesus? What would you say? He was, Jesus is uh, historically a first century rabbi from the Galilee region who was probably a carpenter, probably an odd job kind of guy, um, who had a following, as most rabbis did, of young men and women who traveled with him from place to place as he taught. Um, and Jesus said he was God, he was God's son, and that he was sent to redeem the world entire. And I believe that to be true, and that he did, the world entire, um, that he was crucified, suffered, death, and was buried. All the things in the Nicene Creed, I would tell you, are true, but most people don't care about that. <laughs> they want to know, They want to know. okay, so you believe that Jesus was who he said he was. Well, yes, I, I do. And so then what? Well, I believe that Jesus wants us who aspire to call ourselves little little Christs as Christians to be his physical hands and feet and voice and eyes and arms in the world um, to reach out to the margins to gather them to ourselves to embrace the world to be light and love before anything else in the world. And if you're not sure how to do that or what's more important, correcting someone or being loving, just be loving. That's the Jesus is my rabbi. Jesus is my homeboy. Jesus is the one who I try to, and I'm totally cribbing this from Anne Lamott, I daily try to do do things that don't horrify Jesus and make him want to drink gin from a cat dish. <laughs> that's a great answer, and you can't you, right. you can't do much better than quoting Annie Lamont. I mean, that's just about as good as you can do. <laughs> um, but you know, and no one would ever complain uh, if if people who you know profess faith there were, were no one saying, "Gee, those people are trying too hard to be like Jesus." <laughs> that's not a complaint. Yeah. Just, and no, I and, and and I and I I'm tired. I mean, there was a time when I have the I have the the rote answer: Jesus is my savior. He's the son of God. He's Christ the King. He's, mm -hmm. you know, I, I don't want to. I don't want to. I don't want to make it sound like Jesus is a commodity that I can own or not. Jesus is bigger than all of that, mm -hmm. and I just aspire to walk with him. And help, if I can in the best way I can by getting out of my own way is usually the fastest way of getting to what's helpful. That's the hardest thing for me. It's getting out of my own way. It's welcome to the human condition. <laughs> and, again, <laughs> and that sort of leads into the, the next question. I mean, I, I think we're walking the same path there. I love what you said about Jesus, but uh, as a reporter, you can't help but have some thoughts. At least I couldn't about 
the great evangelical leadership meltdown during this election cycle. And this, uh, this will run after the presidential election. So, you know, uh, or, or not, or not it'll yeah. be the last thing recorded before the apocalypse. <laughs> well, that's exactly right. So I'll add the, uh, some sort we'll of, let's just uh, go for it. I'll throw, I'll throw <laughs> another Leonard Cohen, Leonard Cohen song at the end from his new album. And that'll be the end of us all. But uh, do you think that the, this, this, at least from the uh, standpoint of, um, the corporate evangelical leadership that has become can recover from their dogged endorsement of Donald Trump. I don't. Well, okay. Are you asking me as a reporter? As a reporter, yeah. Um, If I were at a newspaper that allowed me the time to investigate things, I would spend most of my energy trying to follow the money. Mm Mm-hmm because that's what happened. Mm -hmm. And secondarily to that, it would seem, is this obsession with equating influence and power with some sort of twisted godliness. And I want to know how we got there. As a journalist, that's that's the thread I want to pull is looking at evangelical Christianity and how we got to the place where Franklin is saying and doing the things Franklin has been saying and doing for the last decade in his father's name, which I think is atrocious. And his dad was, has been the most open about his biggest mistake ever was getting too close to the president and going into back rooms. And he said that was the biggest regret of his entire ministry. Productive, isn't it? It power is well, power seductive, yeah. And and I look at the list on his steering committee, and I, I, I look at people, some of whom I love dearly, some of whom are extraordinarily close to me in my life, who not only think that Mr. Trump is a good idea, or was a good idea for president, but that it's somehow divinely ordained. How on earth... Did Jesus' posse on earth, people following a God who came and was born, and I'm going to quote Bono here, born into shit and straw poverty, which is one of the most poetic ideas ever and what makes part of what makes Christianity different than anything else, is that Jesus did everything to relinquish power and to confront perceived power and influence and wealth. And this is where the Catholic Church gets the idea of the preferential option for the poor. I mean, it's, it's to my mind, as a journalist who wants to understand why people believe what they do and how that affects the way they act, I want to pull that thread and I want to have conversations with people. I want to have I looked at people uh, on the list of his advisors, some of whom I know quite well, and go, how, tell, help me understand how you got here. What, why you think that this iteration of, of power is something that Jesus would have any interest in. Um, Explain to me how your theology lines up with 
the platform, explain to me how your understanding of accountability and and grace and sin and redemption line up with the way this candidate has behaved before the campaign and during the campaign and after the campaign. How, how, how is that somehow deserving of the Christian imprimatur you're attempting to give it? And then how is this woman who is a lifelong church-going, Bible-studying Methodist who isn't perfect and is the first person to tell you that, by the way, how turning her into a pariah, as you did with her predecessor, Mr. Obama, who's also a believer, how... Now, you you interviewed him. I, I read your interview... Yeah, with President Obama, and he was very forthright about his faith in Christ, his yep. his Christian. I mean, yep. there's people that are questioning all these things. Need to go and just search your name, Kathleen yeah, Hassani interview. No, you know. So the problem with that interview is that I've I've kind of written pieces about this over over the years because that, that interview is twelve years old now. Mm-hmm. Um, people, it's like it's a litmus test. People people see in it what they want to see in it. Mm. And so people, whatever preconceived notion you have about President Obama and his spiritual beliefs, Mm -hmm. before you read it, you will find affirmed in it. Mm. So, I mean, I know people who have, plenty of people, because they continue to write to me, um, who have read it and come away convinced that he's a closet Muslim and, and, uh, you know, the harbinger of of the, the beast or whatever all the crazy things are. And, you know, we talk about, back to the Baptist, the, f- the fruit of the Spirit. Mm-hmm. Now, nobody says that the fruit of the Spirit should be any kind of litmus test for the President of the United States. But when you're talking, when you're having a conversation in our evangelical quarters, in particular, about who is essentially the more Christian candidate, and you just pan back 10 feet, and, and look at how people behave and what does that say about the disposition of their heart, which frankly is something I care about um, in, in people in general and particularly in, in leaders and people who are going to be held up by virtue of their position as examples for our children, mm-hmm. how they compose themselves. And... <clears throat> You know, this is why I'm glad I'm a columnist. It, it's, but even there's there's a way that I would ask this as a reporter, as a straight reporter, that I want to hear people explain to me what they see and how it's aligning with the fruit of the spirit or whatever else it is. Um, and because I don't, I really don't understand. It, it's uh, it's like bizarro world for me when I I look at what some of the things that self-proclaimed Christians, self-proclaimed evangelical Christians have said about Hillary Clinton or Barack Obama and some of the things that they've said about 
Trump and his wife. And I just, I don't, I don't know what they're looking at. I don't know what they're hearing. I can't figure it out. So occasionally I feel like, did I just have a stroke? Or did he, did he say that out loud? And now you have somebody saying, what a, we have to defeat her. She's terrible. She's evil. And he's the, somehow the great redemptive hope for Christian voters. <laughs> I don't get it. I, I, there's I don't two, get it. Two things you just said, I think. That, that One, and I've been around this a long time and covered the 88 election. I mean, it, mm-hmm. this is the most humiliating run of any candidate I've ever witnessed. I mean, oh, I know yeah. she looks, she's terrible. She's a terrible campaigner. Let's just, she's not good at that. No, she's, she's a, she's a, she's a, 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 a this is a podcast, so I can speak yeah. freely, right? Yeah, absolutely. She's a, she's a get-shit-done girl. Yeah, right. She wants to be, and she said it herself, she'd be happy to be in the Oval Office or getting work done and never to be seen again, because right. that's what she does. So her public persona is not uh, not her strong suit, because she's concentrated on other things. But the other thing you said, I think, is is one of those global things that has been overlooked by people of the Christian faith, anyway, is... Really, the understanding is you will know people by the fruit and the fruit of the Spirit, and it's peace, patience, kindness, joy, loving, right. and self-control. And it, the, the verse that follows that says, against such things there is no law. So right. you've got this list that if if certainly none of us exhibit all of those at one time and sometimes none no. of them, but if you never exhibit <laughs> any of them publicly, then it's, right. it's time for a self-examination at the very least. Well, then I look I look back, you know, I, I, I knew Barack Obama a little when I was in Chicago, and I've, I, I, I have a great deal of esteem for him. And, you know, I did have that conversation with him that nobody else had for many, many years. He didn't, he still really isn't, hasn't given a, another interview like that um, in the moments, you know, in the, the few moments he had just before he would never not be known again. I mean, it, it was, I met him in a restaurant, you've read the interview, but I read him in a restaurant alone on a Saturday in downtown Chicago, and he wow. walked in without anybody with him, and he sat down, and he answered every question, and he didn't have a script, and he was forthright, and he went back and corrected some things that it would have been easier for him in hindsight if he had left the, the impression that he'd given me. I mean, he was just truthful and real and present. And I, I look at how he's, behaved throughout his presidency and particularly in the last six months mm-hmm. and what even this week you know there was a i'm sure you've probably seen it there was a video of of he was speaking somewhere on behalf of mrs clinton and at a rally in a in a, an older gentleman yeah, yep. showed up with it and and how corrective he was he reminded me of my pastor from the southern baptist church who would probably scream if you heard me equate the two of them. <laughs> but listen, Pastor Mark, you two, you and Barack are a lot more alike than you think. But he, the corrective that he issued to the crowd, don't boo. You know, yep. don't, you know, we have to respect our elders. We have to, we have freedom of expression here. This is exact. Don't do that. Let's be kind. Let's be, let's be patient. Let's be understanding. Let's be peaceful. Um, Let's be civil and honoring. And I mean, just the way I wish I saw more of our religious leaders saying those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Um, you hear them out of Rome these days, which is nice. That's true. <laughs> do, that's, uh, d- does this cycle make you wish you were still doing journalism on a daily basis? 
I think I, I, this, this, this particular cycle, if I had been having to cover all of this, the religious machinations around this, I, I think it would have done me in. Yeah. I think that would have been almost, I think it would have been almost worse than those 18 months or so of every day getting a call from a clergy sex abuse survivor who, for whatever reason, decided to tell a reporter first. You know, I, I remember this one man, he was in his 80s, and called to tell me that he had been abused. And I was the first person he'd ever told. Mm-hmm. And, and that, that was a grind, and it was brutal, and it was the ugliest part of human behavior. And, we, and I sat with that, and I wrote about it, and I chased it. And that was soul-gutting. But I think if I had to cover this as a reporter day in and day out for the last 18 months, I don't know what I would do. I can barely read my Facebook feed. And we don't even, even can't even begin to talk about when, when did fake news come? I mean, <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, and, and the people who fall for it and we've oh, all, yeah. we've all gone, Oh, repost. And then, right. you know, somebody goes, Nope. And right. you feel like an idiot. Even yeah. it happens to me. And I'm a, allegedly a professional journalist. Well, what are you working on next? What's next? Well, um, I am working on a, uh, we're in the, you know, the early processes of figuring out, you know, who's going to publish it, et cetera, of uh, a book about my son and how we became a family. And um, I have a, a project about around that involves Pope Francis that I've been chipping away at and noodling out for a number of years now um, not, that keeps getting pushed back onto the shelf. And I think the longest, longer it gets put onto the shelf, the more interesting it gets. So that's fine. And then I just sent off, as I told you, I think before we started recording today, um, uh, a book proposal about a, a book having to do with uh, the Chicago Cubs fandom and faith. Well, that was my next question. Can the Cubs repeat? <laughs> now they did it the last time they won the series. Can they repeat? Absolutely, they can. <laughs> you know what makes me? You know what makes me know that they can, and have faith, which is what Cubbies do, Cub fans do, is have faith. The smile on Bryant's face in that whole last out, from the time he caught the ground ball and threw it to Rizzo, he has this big, joyful grin on his face, and that means that. I, you know, I think Madden, who's sort of a a Zen guru himself, he got the men to be present and to I think to reengage with the joy of the game and the joy of the sportsmanship, and that more than anything else, that look on Bryant's face, and then you know Anthony Rizzo crying and being just elated and all of the celebrations afterwards and the selflessness and there was no triumphalism. Mm. Genius manager. That gives me hope. Genius manager. Mm-hmm. You're right. Oh, I love him. Yeah. And that's you know, it's funny. I was in Chicago um, the week last week, and uh, was there just briefly. So I was there in Chicago for the first home game of the series, and I was sitting with um, one of my old pals from the Sun Times, who's now at the Tribune, Annie Sweeney, wonderful reporter, um, crime reporter, investigative reporter, and she, she were talking about Madden. And I was like, oh, my gosh, this guy. She goes, oh, I would, I would give anything for a Falsani treatment of Madden. 
Because when I was, you know, back in 2003 when they had their last sort mm-hmm. of successful run before Bartman, I actually got to spend time um, with a player named Zambrano, um, who, was a, who was a pitcher at the time, a young guy who was a Pentecostal believer from Latin America who was really kind of interesting. And through that, got to know Dusty Baker, who was the manager at the time. And Dusty is perhaps the coolest human being I've ever met. <laughs> like, like just, if you can be anybody, be yourself, but if you can be anybody else, be Dusty Baker. I mean, he, so, and the way he was with his team and the way he got them to work together was amazing. And with Dusty, it was all spiritual related. And I have a feeling, I have a feeling that there's a lot spiritually going on under the surface there with Mr. Madden. And I would love the chance to unpack that with him. Well, I sure hope you get to do that. <laughs> we'll see. Well, Kathleen, you, like I said, you are one of my tribe. And may your family grow in grace. And may you continue Thank to be you. a light to others the way you have been. So I really appreciate your voice in the world and all the things you're doing. And appreciate you taking time to talk to me today. Well, this has been an absolute delight. And, and thank you so much for asking the questions. And frankly, for the gift of, of bringing some memories back to me that I hadn't thought about in a long time. And and uh, all of it is grace, you know? Fantastic. So. It all, all it is grace, as Brennan Manning wrote, <laughs> better than any of us could. Well, thanks, Kathleen. I appreciate it. Thank you. And if you need anything else, just let me know. And, and uh, just give me a heads up when it runs. I'll make sure to push it out. I can't will. wait to hear I, it. I sure will. It's been delightful talking with you, brother. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Always good to run into somebody who's a member of your tribe. And uh, really appreciate Kathleen taking time to... Uh, chatted up we had that discussion just before the election so you may have heard some of the things in there believe it or not advent is almost upon us and next week's guest will be paula d hawkins who has written several books on advent and is a retired methodist minister and writer and author and she's also someone very engaged in her community because she works with refugees and with the lgbtq community in nashville so join me next week when my guest will be Paula Hawkins. When you can't find the light that guides you through a cloudy day, when the stars ain't shining bright, you feel like you've lost your way. When the candle light of home burns so very far away, now you gotta let your soul shine. Like my daddy used to say